Stephen, while having all of the, the faith and the Holy Spirit that made him a desirable choice as a deacon of the church, while demonstrating the grace and power of God through signs and wonders among the people, we see this and, and it seems like this should be a, a celebration. It starts out as an exciting story, but it ends in what seems to be tragedy. And yet, I would not want us to miss out on the reality that it's not tragedy for Stephen. He doesn't view it that way. In fact, he seems to actually be filled with joy, even at the point of death. He's so consumed with the reality of who Jesus is, with the gospel of Christ being made manifest in his life as he reflects that reality, that all of this persecution doesn't phase him. The core reality that we need to see here is that God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. Stephen reflects the reality of Christ even as they're throwing stones. Knowing it's coming, he stands with power. As it's happening, as the stones are in the air, even striking his head and body, before he loses consciousness, he displays a Christ-like grace that cannot come any other way than the Spirit of God moving in our hearts. Let's take a look at some points to ponder. First off, we see that the gospel always brings opposition. The gospel always brings opposition. In John chapter 15, starting with verse 18, Jesus says this to His disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The gospel always brings opposition. If the world hates Christ, and Jesus says that as given, history backs it up, it's not religion that the world hates. There's lots of religious people. There are a lot of religions. Some are respected, even endorsed by governments. Religion isn't the problem. It's Jesus. The gospel, to be the gospel, must always be Christ-centered. And if the world hated Him, it will hate any gospel that is Christ-centered. And it will hate those who belong to Him. The gospel always brings opposition. Next notice, the Holy Spirit empowers those who trust Him to do so. The Holy Spirit empowers those who trust Him to do so. Back in Acts chapter 6, we see, as we read in, in verse 5 of chapter 6, Stephen is a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Because he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives him wisdom that his opponents can't refute. As we read in verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Previous rendering of this in the New International Version said that they couldn't stand up against Stephen's wisdom or the Spirit by whom he spoke. This spiritual wisdom that Stephen has 
comes from God, comes from the Holy Spirit. Psalm 111 verse 10 tells us that wisdom begins with God. It's echoed in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10. We see it ringing throughout the Scriptures. But the psalmist writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow His precepts have good understanding. To Him belongs eternal praise. This is the heart of the 119th Psalm from which I read at the beginning of the service. Psalm 119 is a love song to God's Word. And it roots itself in the reality that all reality is God's reality. All truth is God's truth. Therefore, the truth of God's Word, God's commands, are ultimately the place where wisdom is found. Trusting the Lord, not ourselves, is the key to taking hold of that. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. I think this is the essence of what we read throughout the Scriptures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. You think you know something, but you know nothing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your path straight. Over and over and over, we see this principle in the Scriptures that those who follow Christ, follow God, follow the commands of God, has laid out in His Word, those who follow Him will not go astray. Those who follow God have understood how the matrix works. They live in the real world. They're connected with the source of life and the source of reality. God is the beginning of all wisdom. In fact, James 1.5 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God. They should seek it from Him. Because God gives wisdom liberally to everyone without finding fault. He's not looking to pick you apart and say, well, you're not, you're not smart enough for this wisdom. Sorry. Nice try, though. God's not looking to you to say, you know, I really wish that you had done this on Tuesday instead of what you did. Therefore, I'm going to withhold my wisdom. No. In fact, it says He gives liberally to anyone without finding fault, without looking at your faults, parsing your life to say, well, you just, you just don't make the cut. The Word of God is available to us. The Spirit of God will make it clear to us and guide us. But He does go on to give a caveat. The one who asks must believe and not doubt. Now, some folks have turned that into sort of a the God of trick questions kind of a deal. That God is just withholding all of this wisdom. He doesn't want to give you your blessings. He's kind of a stingy God. But if you prove yourself through just the right kind of faith or just the right kind of incantation-like prayer, then God will he'll give you a little bit of this. But that's not the God that we see. He gives liberally without finding fault. Why does He say then that you have to believe and not doubt? Because you have to trust Him to do what you're asking Him to do. Why does Stephen have this grace and power? Why does he find himself filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit's wisdom? 
Because Stephen trusts God. He's a man full of faith. He listens to God. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, because, as we see, he's already equipped himself with the Word, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith, he's listening to God, and he is trusting that God will do what He says He will do, that God will keep His Word. He has no fear of the opposition. He's not trying to come up with the most clever plan, what's my great strategy and scheme. He is simply speaking truth and letting God take care of the rest. The Holy Spirit empowers those who trust Him to do so. God gives wisdom when we get out of the way When we trust Him to give us the wisdom we need, when we trust Him to empower us for the moment, rather than leaning on our own understanding and trying to come up with some way where we look clever and smart. The gospel always brings opposition. The Holy Spirit empowers those who trust Him to do so. We see also in this scene with with Stephen a principle that applies even today. Standing against opposition leads to persecution. Standing against opposition leads to persecution. Stephen's wisdom only infuriated them. Have you ever tried to convince someone who just was not willing to be convinced? They want to debate, they want to argue, and you can beat them in the debate. You can have the better point. They're still not convinced because they're feeling that argumentative nature. Or you can win the point, you can win the debate with your great, brilliant apologetics, and yet their heart has not yielded to it. You may have won the debate, but you haven't necessarily won a person, won a soul, won a heart. I learned many, many years ago that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That opposition did not dig Stephen having answers for their arguments. Notice what happens in verse 11. This opposition turns into persecution because Stephen stands in the truth. Verse 11, then when, he, when they could not stand up against the wisdom uh, the Spirit gave him as he spoke, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. As I was reading some commentaries on this, uh, they were gleaning from this that the the inference, the, the connotation here is that they went out and hired false witnesses. In doing this in verse 11, we see in verse 12 that they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Are you kidding me? Stephen said that? Stephen is blaspheming against Moses and against God? They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now just understand that nothing good starts with seizing, right? When you're seized, when the people grab you, and you're under arrest, so to speak, only this is a mob, that doesn't go well. Anything that happens with a mob feels a lot like a lynching, doesn't it? And they they carry him off. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking. You know, it goes from he said some things to now he never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Even now, even in the midst of this persecution, his countenance was like that of an angel. Notice that since they couldn't overcome the Spirit's wisdom in him, they sought to eliminate him the same way the Jewish leaders sought to eliminate Jesus through false accusations, through false witnesses that led ultimately to execution. Stephen knew this. He knew that the charge of blasphemy blasphemy brought the death penalty. So when he goes into the Sanhedrin and he knows he's being accused of this, he has no doubt what's at stake. Having stood against the opposition and having stood strong, having won the debate, so to speak, it leads to persecution. They up the ante. We're done talking. Now you're going down. We can't, we can't outwit Stephen. Why? Because Stephen's so smart? No, this isn't about Stephen being smart. It's about the wisdom of the Holy Spirit coming through him. And as he surrendered to the Holy Spirit, he speaks from the Word of God. Notice how he responds. As he responds through this, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but as he responds through this, he responds the same way Jesus responds. Scripture. He doesn't argue in his defense. He speaks truth. This is the lot of those who follow Christ. As we read in John, the servant is not greater than the master. They will oppose the message. They will hate you because they hated Him. And when you stand, the opposition grows stronger. The cost gets higher. You have to decide You have to decide if you will follow Jesus, no turning back. You have to decide if the glory of God is bigger. If the glory that He is waiting to reveal in us is greater than what we are going through today. You have to decide if you will stand and not back down. You have to decide if Christ is enough. All who will follow Christ will face this. The gospel always brings opposition. The Holy Spirit empowers those who trust Him to do so. Standing against opposition leads to persecution. But notice this. Persecution only highlights the call to stand for truth. Persecution only highlights the call to stand for truth. Turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew. There are so many things I want to show you in Matthew that Jesus says about persecution. We'll just take a a couple of them. First, turn to Matthew 5. If you were in John, you're going to go back three more books past that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When you get to Matthew and you find chapter 5, Jesus is giving what we often call the Beatitudes here in this Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And as He is talking this through, 
what we see is that Jesus is not, he's doing exactly the opposite of what he and Stephen and the other Christ followers were accused of. He is not undermining, he's not destroying what Moses taught, he's clarifying what Moses taught. Moses taught God's word. Jesus says, you heard some things, you got a piece of it, let me give you the whole story. After giving these beatitudes, these, these blessed things, verse 10 comes to this point. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying that persecution is not only to be expected, but it's actually to be seen as a blessing. You're in good company. Those who do not belong to God have always persecuted God's spokespeople. Always. And they always will. In John 15, he says, they hated me first. You're just bearing a family resemblance. Still in Matthew, let's turn a few pages and find Matthew chapter 24. While you're turning to Matthew 24, I want to point out there have been some some videos and conspiracy theories that are being bounced around in the midst of coronavirus. They, these types of things are always out there and they pop up with some intensity every so, every so often. I used to see a lot of the New World Order kind of talk in the 90s. and Boy, I remember people with the Bible code, this numerical code, and if you, if you could crack the mystery code of the Bible, then with all of these numerical equations with various letters uh, and, and words meaning certain things, then it would tell you exactly the identity of the Antichrist. I remember Chuck Swindoll preaching about it, and he said, you know, I went through this, this system that they were talking about, and I got done, and it spelled out Swindoll. Pretty sure Chuck's not the Antichrist. We miss the point when we get caught up in these things. Jesus and Paul, Jesus here, we'll see it. Uh, hopefully I, it'll come up in what we're reading, but I want to move along. Jesus and Paul both warn us against getting caught up in quarrelsome speculations, in these trivialities about all of these things that could be ushering in the mark of the beast. Just saw a video, uh, put our, a, a post put out today. It's been out for a while, but someone shared it with me today uh, asking for some insight about Bill Gates ushering in the mark of the beast. Thankfully, this person was a lifer and they knew it wasn't quite right when they read it. But the, the reality is, could Bill Gates be doing something that might lead to something that might lead to the mark of the beast? Sure, maybe. But so do a lot of things. So does the breakdown of the authority of the church. So does the breakdown of the authority of Scripture. When we start to twist it around, we've already given ourselves over to the beast when we don't take God's word for what it is. 
The moment we started having the social acceptance of tattoos as normal, we're laying the pavement here. We're laying the... the, I'm not telling you tattoos are the most evil thing in the world. But if you're used to getting marks on your body, then how shocking will it be to get another mark on your body? Oh, microchips, injections, vaccines. Listen, understand this. I'm going to stop with this point because I'm going to get off track and get fired up. But I have to say this, and I hope lots of people are paying attention online as well, besides the band who's sitting here in front of me. The reality of the mark of the beast is that it will always be a conscious and overt allegiance to the beast, to the Antichrist, in opposition and rejection of God. Nobody is going to take the mark of the beast by accident. Oh, shoot, I got a shot. I didn't know I was getting the mark of the beast. Oh, no, I've got my identity in the National Archive that they're using. I, I didn't know it was the mark of the beast. Listen, you'll know. It'll be clear. Because you won't be able to do business unless you reject God. Unless you worship this beast as if he were God. When that happens, then post the video. The reality of it is, Jesus says here, lots of things are going to happen. Be ready to face persecution. Here we go in, verse, in, in uh, chapter 24. Back on track again here. We're going to, oh man, this is the whole thing I want to look at. Uh, start with verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Notice this. As we stand against opposition, it leads to persecution. Verse 9, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This brings us to the next point. As we stand... People will hate. As we stand, the kingdom gospel will still be preached. Standing against opposition leads to persecution. Our next point is this. Persecution only highlights the call to stand for truth. Persecution only highlights the call to stand for truth. Stephen, in Acts 7, doubles down on presenting the truth in the face of the Sanhedrin. He doubles down full knowing what is at stake. Blasphemy carried a death sentence, which is why they crucified Jesus. They used the same false accusations. But we're called to stand. 
It's not optional. In the middle of this persecution that we just read about in Matthew 24, Jesus says the kingdom gospel is going to be preached to the ends of the earth. It's our calling to continue to stand. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 gives us this description of God's spiritual armor. To put on the full armor of God. Go ahead and turn past Acts to the right, to the book of Ephesians. I don't think it's listed in your program. I wasn't going to take you there, but I'm going to anyway. Acts chapter 6. All of this comes from the first three chapters. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. Some of you are looking at me here in the, in the group saying, you did it again. I keep doing that, right? It's Ephesians chapter 6. And it's based on what happens in the first three chapters of Ephesians as it describes our identity in Christ. But in 10 and following, Ephesians 6, 10 and following, Paul writes, finally... He's getting to the end of the, of the letter here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes... now. Some would take that as an end times reference. It's not. He's talking about the day of your persecution, which would include all of those end times persecutions that will come. But the persecution that you may face tomorrow, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Persecution only highlights the call to stand for truth. It puts us front and center. It's easy it's easy to talk about things when there's no opposition. It's almost easier to hide when there is. But you know, if you are a Christ follower, you know that feeling. If you've been, if you've been a believer for more than 10 minutes, you know that feeling when the Spirit is telling you to speak and the fear shuts you down. think I I can't right now this isn't the right time it's not the right place it's not the right person I can't talk about Jesus to my boss I could lose my job we have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope we profess 
in season and out of season. We need to be ready to preach the gospel in season and out of season. When it feels opportune and when it doesn't. When it's convenient and when it's not. When you are opposed and persecuted, consider it a blessing, but also consider it a challenge. Because the Holy Spirit has equipped you. And He empowers you as you trust Him to do so. To be able to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in the face of all opposition and persecution. Our last point is that the truth of the gospel is confirmed in Christ-like response to persecution. The truth of the gospel is confirmed in Christ-like response to persecution. Notice when Stephen, back in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen talks through this, he's gone through the history of Israel and he, he makes a point of drawing attention to the similarities without saying it overtly. He shows the similarities between the call of Abraham and the call of Moses to go here and do God's work. And he sends Moses back to a people who had rejected him so that he could deliver them. And God appointed him as their ruler and deliverer and judge. Just like Christ. And he goes on to develop this idea and he he says to the Sanhedrin in this confrontation when he finally breaks from our ancestors and now says your ancestors, he says to them, look, you stiff-necked people. They're not your ancestors because of lineage. They're not your ancestors because of, of your genealogy. They're your ancestors because you have inherited their trait of rejecting the Word of God. You, just like them, have received the Word, but have not obeyed it, and you rejected the One who came to save you, just as they rejected the ones who prophesied of Him. Stephen responded in the same way we see Jesus respond in the Gospels. When Jesus was opposed, He didn't back down. He didn't. He stood with truth. But he didn't get off in speculations. He quoted Scripture. And he drew their attention back to the Word of God. And he demonstrated grace, but he never hedged on the truth. Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. Just like Jesus did not defend himself, Stephen didn't either. He taught of the kingdom. He confronted them in their rejection. He spoke truth powerfully and he demonstrated grace even as he was dying. The last things we see, if we jump from 6-8 where the passage begins, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed wonders and signs among the people. And we jump to, really we can leave 8-1 because it's leading into the next part. But if we look at, at verse Uh, 60 of chapter 7 as the culmination of this while the stones are flying 
Verse 60 says, then he fell on his knees. Tell me this doesn't remind you of Christ. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Grace. Even as he was dying, he prayed for God to show his murderers mercy. When we reflect the reality of Christ, we reflect the fullness of His character, the fullness of grace and truth. As Jesus is the perfect representation of the invisible God, so the church, as His ambassadors, as we're called in 2 Corinthians 5, is the representation of Christ in the world. As we represent Christ in the world, we see the call. Flip through a couple of passages and we'll end. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 begins with the call to make ourselves living sacrifices in view of God's mercy. And then he goes on to say, when we do this and we're renewed in our mind and transformed from within by God's Spirit, then we live differently. Notice what he says in verse 14. It's not often I have you turn to read one verse, but I want us to read this one verse. Having said, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. We come to this one verse in the midst of this, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless Do not curse. That's hard. That's what Stephen does. He blesses them. He prays for God not to hold this sin against them. Turn farther back to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter, you can read all the way from, from here to chapter 3. In fact, let's, uh, let's jump to chapter 2 of First Peter. Start with verse 18 of chapter 2. Speaking here specific, specifically to slaves... For our sake and context, we could call it those who are oppressed, those who are mistreated wrongfully. That's not really the context he's speaking it in, but the application draws from it as we'll see through the rest. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing, doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep growing astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He goes on with a word to wives and husbands. Picks up in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter has a lot to say about suffering. So does Paul. Romans chapter 8, seeing our glory as not being worthy of comparing to the our, our suffering is not worthy of comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He goes on to say that we're more than conquerors. And even when we are persecuted, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, let me make sure I'm right about that. Yes, 2 Corinthians 4 says the same thing. That we face these persecutions all the time. But we're still joyful. We're not, we're not abandoned. We are pressed, but we're not crushed. We're persecuted, we're not abandoned. We have something greater. That's why he can say, as he's chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, writing the letter to the Philippian church, that's why he can say, for me, to live is Christ. And if, if for me to live is Christ, then I need to expect persecution to go along with that. So I'm a prisoner for the gospel. Hallelujah. My chains advance the gospel because as I respond in a Christ-like way with the power of God's truth and the grace of the love of Christ flowing through me, then the gospel that I preach is confirmed. The truth of the gospel is confirmed in the Christ-like response to persecution. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Why would he say to die is gain? Because I get to be with Christ. And Christ is my all in all. He's my everything. He is enough. He's more than enough. He's fully sufficient for all my needs. Paul has embraced the reality of Matthew 5.10 when Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stephen embraced this reality. So when he looked up and God revealed the glory of Himself and the Son of Man standing next to him, Stephen was raptured. I don't mean he was taken out of the moment physically, but his soul, his mind, his heart were taken out of the circumstance. It was happening. The stones were striking him, but he didn't care anymore. This is about Jesus. And knowing that Christ suffered for him, he prayed, Lord, save them. Show them mercy. Don't hold this sin against them. God's power and grace are displayed in us 
when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. Persecution is inevitable. We have to wrap our minds around that. If you are not being opposed, if you are not facing some form of persecution, derision, mockery, disrespect, because you trust Jesus, you might want to ask yourself how much you look like Jesus. You might want to ask yourself if you bear that family resemblance. He said they hated me first. That's why they hate you. If they don't hate us, do we really look like Him? If we are doing the things that go with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the cultural, comfortable Christianity that we maybe are used to, where we say God bless you and nice things and Merry Christmas and all that kind of stuff, that is often more closely aligned with a political agenda than with the truth of the Scriptures. If we're more bent out of shape about other people's sins than we are about our own, if we are willing to sacrifice the real truth to be, able, to be able to get on board with a particular set of values that we call the American way at the expense of the principles of Scripture, then we don't know anything about the gospel. We will face opposition if we are in Christ. If we reflect the reality of who He is, not just part of Him, not just the likable parts, but the full expression of the nature and character of God in Christ, we'll face persecution without doubt. Be prepared and stand. When our hope is in Christ alone, when we see Him as precious and sufficient, the things that would ordinarily overwhelm us become small. When we see God's glory, nothing else compares. Persecution becomes a platform. It becomes a display case where we can show off God's power and His grace. God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. Let's pray.